welcome to the 219th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Has the shine worn off the local food movement? That's a question that's being asked as farmers who sell direct to consumers find themselves increasingly struggling to maintain consistent market options. Community-supported agriculture operations are taking longer to fill out their membership roles each year, Some restaurants that have been committed to buying local food have reduced their purchases or gone out of business altogether. And schools and other institutions seem to be not as excited about serving local food in their cafeterias as they were in the past. Because the local food movement has the potential to play such a pivotal role in supporting the kind of farming that's good for the land and rural economies, the Land Stewardship Project is taking a serious look at some of its challenges and what, if anything, groups like LSP should be doing to address them. Currently, LSP is in a fact-finding mode. As I record this podcast, we're holding a series of listening sessions where we're seeking input from members on what policy changes could help develop a vibrant, sustainable local food system. These listening sessions are just the latest in a series of initiatives LSP has undertaken to gather input on reforming our food production and distribution system. For example, Terry Vanderpool, who directs LSP's Community-Based Food Systems Program, recently conducted a research project involving an online survey, one-to-one conversations, and an analysis of the latest data related to local food markets. Vanderpoel, who raises grass-fed beef in western Minnesota, recently sat down to talk to me about what this research turned up. As Vanderpoel describes it, there were a few surprising insights unearthed during the course of this research. It started about a little over two years ago now with some questions brought to, uh, brought to us by the board especially a couple of farmer members of the board who grow for local food systems, with the observation that the CSA model was really kind of hitting some walls. It seemed like in places it was saturated. It seemed like for, for some, uh, I think probably a substantial number of, of, of CSA farmers, it had become a transactional model instead of a transformational model, where we're not thinking so much about, or at least acting so much on, how do we transform the food system? But just thinking of, of this is a way, this is a way to sell food, but also finding that market very very saturated, and wondering what role LSP might have, if any. And, and and we kept that part of the question right in the foreground. Do we have a role, first of all, in expanding the marketplace, making the marketplace more uh, for local foods more accessible, more profitable? What needs to be done? How can it be done? And what should LSP be doing? Mm-hmm. Not too long after that conversation started, I was tasked with trying to initiate conversations among friends and members to, 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 see, to see what answers, see what questions people had and, and, and what answers we could come up with. So over the course probably of the last year, I've been, uh, I've been having a lot of conversations. I assembled a task force of five people. Include, included Andrew Ehrman, the a CSA farmer from the Northfield area, Sylvia Lutmer, who with her husband Tom runs a food hub in Alexandria, uh, Laura Ferrex of Loon Organics, Anne Borgendale, who is involved with Pride of the Prairie from the beginning and, and, and is, uh, is also an aspiring um, cheesemaker, and Jen- Jennifer Ruprecht from Earth Be Glad. We met over the phone probably about five times. They held conversations with people they, they knew with a fairly specific set of questions about uh, what's, you know, what are you seeing in terms of your ability to, to, to be profitable? Where's the logjam? What's in the way? 
Uh, what what are some of your ideas about how we can about how we can make you know loosen things up and 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 uh, make things more profitable for farms like yours? We also did a member uh, member and supporter survey. I, I believe we got a hundred yes one hundred eighty three responses mm -hmm. to a, a fairly short survey. First, if you agree that, that that LSP does have a role in addressing the lack of profitable mark, uh, markets, what should we be doing? What do you think are the top three strategies that we should pursue? And then some, just a simple demogra demographic question. The 183 people who responded were really, I don't have an exact breakdown, but it, it included people who were primarily consumers, people who just grew, grew food for their own family, um, people who direct marketed, and, and also a number of commodity farmers who just are LSP supporters and had some thoughts on, on, on what could be done. Um, we held about over over 50 personal conversation personal one-to-one -one conversations over the course of several months and we had four member meetings plus I did a lot of reading were there any other I guess community-based or local food models for getting food to, to you know from the farm to the consumer that you ran into in some of your background research that uh, maybe people haven't heard of or aren't as familiar with I would say probably uh, cooperative models, from, uh, farmer groups of farmers cooperating with each other to, uh, to access larger markets. We see some of that around here, but not not a whole lot. Another piece that I that I, I, I ran across and is actually beginning to develop here in the Twin Cities area as well is the Good Food Purchase, Purchasing Policy mm. Program, and that is a project that is uh, that has. Pretty grassroots alliances developing in a number of large cities, including Los Angeles, Oakland, New Orleans, uh, New York City, Chicago, to try to push institutional policy for buying local food. So rather than just having a, a school chef who's passionate about it, as we do here in Minneapolis, certainly Bertrand Weber has done a great deal along those lines. Rather than, than just, just relying on the passions of the people who are currently running the kitchen, because they tend to be, they tend to move around a lot, mm -hmm. to actually get, have school boards and other institutional boards adopt policies that say we will do this and we'll, we'll do it authentically along five very specific measures and we'll increase the level of our performance year to year. That was a model I wasn't, I, I, I was not familiar with, and I was pretty excited to hear that some other folks around Minneapolis were talking about it, and we're off the ground and running with that now. We're going to be having some farming farmer listening sessions over the course of the, uh, over the course of the winter to try to find out what are the particular barriers for under-resourced farmers and farmers of color to to, to institutional marketing, and. Um, the Good Food Purchasing Policy Program has done their first assessment of the program at the uh, at the Minneapolis Nutrition Center, and Bertrand has committed to continuing down the path of increasing, improving it, hmm. along the five measures that we talk about, which are environmental sustainability, excellent nutrition, keeping it local, fair treatment of, of, of people in terms of working conditions and, and profit, including food chain workers and farmers, and ethical treatment of livestock. Were there some, I guess, assumptions that you had gathered or you had heard from these other meetings and the other research you'd done that were kind of confirmed, uh, um, that you were, that kind of, uh, I guess, provided some 
some data to back up or some kind of feedback to, to back up maybe what you already were hearing through other avenues? The one that really rise, rises to the top is that we need to grow the pie bigger. We're, we're, we're cutting the pie up in too small of pieces. We need more people demanding local foods in more settings. That was stated over and over again in both the member meetings and the personal visits, and, and that, that rose to the top on the, um, on the survey as well. I was a little surprised to hear a number of people, I think it was four or five people, I guess that's not a lot out of 180, uh, 183 responses, but four or five people said, no, LSB doesn't really have a role. Let the market take care of it. One person said, no, focus on, focus on holding back uh, concentration in agriculture, pushing back on corporate control, uh, corporate control of agriculture, and the problems with the, with the food system will take care of themselves. Hmm. Um, a, a lot of people talked about helping farmers figure out ways to become better marketers. A lot of suggestions around um, price reporting, for example. So there, 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 there were a number of those, enough to lead me to believe that it's, it's, a, it's a conversation that's going on out there. So, so there would be a, a place online for farmers to go to, to see this is what broccoli is selling for. This is what carrots are selling for, mm-hmm. etc. Another thing that rose uh, that rose to the top pretty, pretty dramatically was it really takes it really takes a strong community to do this. We have to figure out a way to cooperate with each other rather than compete with each other. The number one by f- by far was we need to grow the markets. I was a little surprised that, that multiple people mentioned price reporting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had I had not thought about that before. As I do think about it, I, you know, I, I can see where it would be a really useful tool in planning your marketing marketing strategies. But, yeah. um, and a number of people mentioned um, more tools to do marginal analysis so that you know what's working for, for you and what's not working for you. One of the things that emerged from conversations with CSA farmers who have been in it for a long time was, well, two things that, 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 really, that really stuck out. One was we want to. We really, really want to be selling more of our food where we live. Mm. We're really tired of sending it all to the city. No offense, but and of course for reasons of transportation, but also for reasons of, of community. Uh, there, there are a few people who were optimistic about being able to move forward with that. Uh, getting involved with the chamber of commerce, figuring out ways to be taken seriously locally as a business. Um, a lot of people talked. A number of people talked about how can we get the the local economic development authorities to take local food seriously. You know, what, economic development is is well. Let's let's reopen the you know let's reopen the prison and we can bring in immigrant detainees and then we'll all be fine. Rather than thinking about could we invest in making this meat processing plant an E2 facility or a USDA facility, something like that. But there were also there, there there were two conversations that I had in particular that are just that that, that have been, just been kind of haunting me for a long time. One was with a group of farmers in Wisconsin, who made the point that we're entering a period of time of pain in in, in the countryside that we haven't seen since the eighties, mm. when the economic crisis of the eighties hit, and, and it certainly became more than just an economic crisis. It was a crisis of blaming outsiders and you know the international Zionist conspiracy and all the yeah. all the really ugly stuff that was happening when that happened there was a great crying out of, of, about that pain in the in the countryside and a couple of people made the point that 
we're heading into a period that's going to be just as bad, if not worse, but there's so few of us to call to cry out anymore. Is anybody even going to hear us? Another conversation that I had, that this was a telephone conversation with a CS8 farmer who has been doing it for years and years, also talked about, you know, we, we just plan don't have enough markets. It's not really fair. We're, we're doing a great job of, of preparing beginning farmers to go out and, and, and farm. Most of them want to do some kind of direct marketing farming. I think it's less than 7% that are interested in primarily crops. And, and, and then they're going out in, into what he described as broken, frayed rural communities and, and with very little chance for, for success. Mm-hmm. It's not just so, so it, it becomes more than a matter of just building markets locally. It becomes really a matter of rebuilding lo- local rural communities. And, the, you know, the suggestion was made in both of these conversations that maybe, maybe what LSP ought to, ought to be doing, and I don't take this lightly because it's an extremely difficult thing to even wrap your head around, is, is uh, figuring out ways to help our members do community building. There's a whole host of issues that, that, that have to be addressed. If we want to sell more food locally in rural areas, and then I realize there's parts of the Twin Cities areas that this, this is certainly true of too, but if that family is trying to hold down three or four jobs, and, and you're asking them to come home and start supper with a CSA box and a whole chicken, that, that, that's just not going to happen. You know, and it's not particularly helpful. That's not what, what, what's on their mind when they can't find affordable daycare for their kid. When, when, the, when the housing stock is so terrible, there's, there, there are, are no decent places to live for any amount of money, which is, which is the case in a lot of rural areas. When we're seeing trade wars being, st- being started, in, in, in my opinion, pretty, pretty offhandedly, that are really going to create some incredibly intense emotional pain. I mean, we were already in a situation where we were losing dairies, um, dairy farms, both in Wisconsin and, and Minnesota, just one after another. And now we have various trade wars to consider on top of that. It's going to get desperate, and only the, only the biggest and the best capitalized are going to survive. Is there a way for rural communities to come together to address some of these problems, to apply the kind of resources that we need to, to, to make other parts of living a little bit easier mm-hmm. so that we can start thinking differently about food? I mean, most of Minnesota doesn't have, doesn't have access to decent broadband. All of, these things, all of these things are weighing really, really heavily on people, and we need to reweave the communities. We've sunk down into tribalism. I think that's a really, really interesting point, and I could see two, at least two, there's more than that, but at least two major advantages as far as addressing some of the issues that, other issues that came up in, in, in your research on uh, kind of the landscape of the, of the uh, local food and community-based food uh, system. One is, if you can build up that community, build up that infrastructure, it makes these farmers more efficient. Like they can get their meat processed locally, or they can get their other products processed or transported, or or and it gives them just that support system. But the other thing is, if you build up these communities, that's another market, that's a local market, and we don't always have to rely on them trying to find people in the cities and the suburbs and the you know the food co-ops, which have been great markets, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's a transportation issue and. Those markets are being fed by other sources of food, and so it, it seems like that would be that would really there'd be just two major advantages to that building that rural uh, community infrastructure and uh, relying less on 
we're just going to have these isolated farmers out there and they're going to ship, you know, once a week, bring in their product or whatever kind of thing. Yeah, I think that yeah, I think that I think you're exactly right about that. I, one of the things that that can happen if to the extent that we're successful doing that is that people will be able to afford to buy local food, and as you say, farmers can stay home and farm, uh, and 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 not be the entire food chain themselves, which really kind of eats into the idea of well, I can sell my product for a lot less if I if I act as the entire food chain because that's uh, that's just I, that's not sustainable for most people. Livestock processing is is is, oh, is yeah. at a real it's at a real yeah. crisis right now. With farm, with the farmers who who market livestock products off their farm need, are are the smaller, uh, smaller small town, what we used to call locker plants, but but now they they are state or federally uh, some of them are state or, or federally ins inspected uh, processing facilities. There, there there there's three levels. Of what I'm talking about, one is one is the custom custom plant, which has been around forever, and that's the local butcher who will butcher um, butcher a hog or, or or a steer for a family. That's the sort of setup that you can go to. For example, if I sell a whole animal to somebody or a half an animal, they they, they can say take it to that custom butcher, and I'll I'll call them and tell them how to cut it up. The next level is what we call E2. And that refers to equal to, and that's a state-inspected facility that has been upgraded and inspected by Minnesota Department of, of Ag inspectors. And they, uh, that's a plant that I, I can bring animals to and pick up packets of meat and sell it anywhere in the state of Minnesota. I can sell it to a restaurant. I can sell it to individuals. I can sell it to grocery stores, or, but, but I can't sell it across state borders. Mm -hmm. USDA inspected facilities, they are they're basically required to meet the same standards that the E2 facilities meet. But if you go to a USDA facility, you can um, you can then market across state borders. The problem that we're having with the, with the, especially with the top two, well, with the with the bottom one is appetites aren't that large anymore. Living spaces don't all, don't necessarily allow for large freezers. Nobody buys a whole cow anymore. Mm -hmm. Not not nobody, but very very few. And and I don't know if we're going to be able to buck that trend, particularly. The problem with the other two is that, as is as as is the case, you know, in in a number of industries, the people who are doing it are getting older. They haven't necessarily upgraded their facilities since they since they got since they were inspected, since they won their E2 status or whatever. And now they're looking at retirement, and it's hard to even sell it as, as a viable business because when a new owner comes in, they're going to have to upgrade further. So a lot, uh, some of these, these folks are just locking the doors and walking away. Uh, I, I've heard stories from farmers who have been called and told, don't, don't, bring, don't bring your hogs in tomorrow because we're shutting down. You know, I've heard stories of people uh, literally driving all the way across the state to try to find a place to have their, have their animals processed. That, that is, that's a crisis. There's a lot of conversation about that, including in my area. I know there's some farmers who are interested in the possibility of cooperating on starting a mobile kill facility and then bringing, you know, bringing the carcasses on a, on a, on a rail in a refrigerated truck to somebody else to cut up. Um, a number of solutions, ideas for solutions are out there, but you know, meat meat processing is a huge investment. 
It requires a lot of equipment. It requires a lot of training. But it can be a viable business. It, it, it could bring some good jobs to, to some, some of these small towns. Is, I get a sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe what came out of this research and the survey and everything is a little bit of this, the need for both parties to meet each other in the middle or somewhere uh, where they're not, which is, and I guess what I'm thinking of is, for the farmers, they need to become more aware that there's a change in lifestyles and diets and, and all of that, and the days of buying a whole cow are probably over for the majority of consumers. But for the eaters on the other side, they need to, I guess, be aware of the realities of if they really want to see the land taken care of in a certain way, they want to see a certain kind of farming out there, that maybe they need to come move a little bit toward that and and maybe be willing to do a little research. I don't know what else, but kind of figure out, do a little bit of research and figure out what, is the source of this food, what are the, I guess, how that food that's not produced in a sustainable manner by family farmers, how that's produced, the damages and the costs for that kind of thing? That was talked about quite a bit, both on our both on our task force conversations and, and also interviews with farmers, talking about how we need to figure out a way to help people go deeper and surface their, their environmental values. And, and make real changes in the way they lead their lives with an understanding of why it matters. Mm. And, and, and certainly farmers have to be part of that conversation as well. It's too easy, I recall one farmer t- telling me, you know, it's, it's, it's real easy if you don't want to see homelessness to walk right past a homeless person sitting on the sidewalk. And, and the same is true of a lot of environmental problems that are caused with, with a broken food and farming system. Mm-hmm. So, that, yeah, that was talked about a lot. How, how, can, we, how can we figure out a way for both, for, for, uh, for both sides to do a little bit more compromising to come together? The other thing that, that was talked about was, you know, there are farmers out there that are just really good at reading trends, farmers who, who grow for direct markets. Is there any way we could be more helpful in getting a crystal ball and looking what is the next what you know, because food food is very very trendy mm-hmm. and and then to be able to do that and position yourself for you know what's how, how can I advantage my operation for the next decade what's going to happen what's going to be happening in the food system mm-hmm. the other thing that we talked about quite a bit that, that, that I'm really pretty jazzed about I, I I've been thinking about this also as director of the Chippewa 10% project working with farmers in the uh, Chippewa watershed wanting to perennialize more of their land and, and, and create more continuous living cover. One of the things that you hear a lot is from farmers who are like, like-minded with, with, our me- with, with the LSB message and, 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 and so forth. They probably farm a modest number of acres and they do it very well. They keep their costs down so they're doing okay. But now my 30-year-old daughter wants to come back to the farm. I, I can't go out and buy another 500 acres of land. It's just, you know, with the price of land, it's just absolutely un- untenable. So how can I bring livestock back? To, to, I mean, she's, she's really good with livestock. Mm-hmm. Can we bring livestock back on, on this farm and create enterprises around that that, that will support, a, you know, a larger business? I think there's real opportunity in, in medium-sized farms who pri- primarily at this point grow commodities 
to take a to take a chunk of, of of local food systems, local and regional food systems opportunities, especially with regard to livestock, um, I, and I think it might be one of the only opportunities mm. on the horizon, really. So that was talked about a lot, and and it came up came up again and again too when we were talking about the breaking you know the 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 breakdown of the rural community because one of the tribal fissures. One of the tribal breaks that's that, that's beginning to show in rural areas is that break between commodity farmers and farmers who grow for local food systems. It is not across the board. There certainly are direct marketing farmers who are complete total members of their community and get along very well with their commodity farming neighbors, etc. But every once in a while, you you run into these murmurings of uh, they're, they're just a bunch of hippies. They got to all be on food stamps, you know. Or, or uh, you know, really disparaging remarks about commodity farming, even if you know maybe the guys the guys doing a pretty good job with with his land. I, yeah. I think we you know that that just seems to be our go to posture lately. What I'm doing is all right, and what you're doing is all wrong, and and, and we forget we forget sometimes that th- those people are our neighbors, and and maybe 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 one day this winter we'll skid our truck into the ditch, and we're gonna have to ask that guy to help us get out. That's kind of a menial way of thinking about it, but we need to we need to preserve community. Part of that is is is, is I think healing healing that break between commodity farming and, and direct marketing farming. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be thought of as an either or enterprise. It, it, it has to be done one community as one community at a time. Going back a little bit to the idea of building community and building that infrastructure, mm-hmm. I do know. I hear a lot from beginning farmers who maybe don't even have a background, a rural background. They say took farm beginnings, and they're real entrepreneurial, and they went into a community, and these are not the norm, but it's the exception. But once in a while, they have some success and really create a bond with a local, couple local commodity farmers, quote-unquote corn soybean people, because they're just so happy to see young people come into the community yes. <laughs> they, yes. and, and are able to get over. And on the flip side, the say the somebody who's doing a CSA or an organic vegetable or grass-fed livestock operation that's considered out of the norm for that community uh, sees the benefits to being neighbors with these farmers who know the local soils, climate, you know, knows where to get your equipment repaired. I do see examples of that too and I know that it, it certainly does happen. The idea of people moving into my community and 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 their kids are going to our schools and perhaps they're attending one of our churches and they're they're shopping at the local hardware store is if for anybody who thinks about it that's huge. How do you feel kind of what's your general sense right now about this whole idea of trying to get farmers rewarded for sustainable practices and using it as a economic engine in a community and source of healthy food and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm actually pretty optimistic about it. I mean, I, I I would love to have heard a number of people saying, well, you know, here's the log jam. I mean, if you, if you just move this one log out of the way, everything is going to flow smoothly and everything's going to be fine. What what we got in terms of, of specific suggestions on what could be done to help were very varied, a lot of suggestions, a wide variety of suggestions that lead me to believe that people are really thinking about this and that we, we can keep building. It probably is going to be more incremental than, than you know, than transformational. Mm-hmm. 
eventually transformational. But I, yeah, I am, I am optimistic because I think it's probably one of the areas where we can really, we can not only build community with it and around it, but we can build community in a way that respects where that community is. That 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 is, that that makes the community responsive to its own biosphere, if you will, and 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 the culture of the people who live there. Mm-hmm. It can provide opportunity if we if we just can really look at ourselves and let it. It can pro- provide opportunity for a, a wide variety of people, including uh, native people. Exciting things happening on 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 reservations with food sovereignty, and I, I find that just tremendously exciting. New immigrants to our area. Food is is always an important part of what people of, of what. Of the culture that people bring in when they immigrate to uh, to a new land and a new community, and the existing community can really benefit from that culturally and economically. So I think that there's a lot of reasons for optimism, but there's a lot of work to be done. Stewardship Project's work related to community-based food systems, see landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Morgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music, and a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, Visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSB. Thanks for listening.